Welcome to the first episode of the TCM Challenge, a monthly movie review podcast where Matt and I challenge each other to watch some classic films. This month's movie is the 1960s confusingly titled Purple Noon, and I'm Matt in Buffalo. And I'm Matt in Arizona. All right, Matt, welcome to the first official episode of our new venture here. And I'm going to say, I think we got a really fun movie to start out with. I'm going to throw that out there. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this discussion because, I mean, obviously I've never seen this movie before and I'm kind of a newbie to this whole uh, universe that this character exists in. Yeah, I'll, I'll own up to not even knowing this movie existed prior to coming up with the conceit for this show and pulling the random bits of uh, five movies to select from. But when I saw this movie was even a thing, I'm like, oh, well, hell, this has to be the selection. So just going back real quick, let's refresh everybody if you missed our kickoff episode. The conceit of the show is we pull five random movies from a month that are going to be airing on Turner Classic Movies, pick out five of those at random, and then we rotate back and forth monthly, picking out which one of those that we want to subject each other to watch, and then we just dive into it from there. So the first month selection that I got to pick from was 1957's Silk Stockings, 1951's experiment Alcatraz, which by the way, we talked about it. That was so much more boring than what we had maybe hoped it would be. It okay, was just, maybe, we, maybe we dodged a bullet then. It's just early 1950s kind of dull radiation paranoia movie. Okay. That, right. Uh, the little, you know, obscure movie vertigo from 1958 and 1947's life with father. But the winner here was, Purple Noon from 1960, which I think I owe a bit of a justification to why I selected this is because this was the first film version of the 1950s novel, The Talented Mr. Ripley. And I think, you know, for certainly you and I, the mo- much more famous version of this is the 1990s um, Jude Law, Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Yeah, yeah. Um, movie, which is quite a bit more, you know, closer in a lot of ways to the original book. But I was just so interested in a book from the 50s written by a woman who was very famous for tons of crime novels a French 60s interpretation of that, and then a 90s American interpretation of all the same material that has a lot of weird crime and sexuality elements. And I was just super interested to see how these different media, different eras, and different cultures would kind of interpret the same source material. And as part of the preparation, I just got excited about this. I went out and got the book, went through that really quickly, I watched this movie and then I watched um, the the Matt Damon one all in quick succession. So I will warn you, I've been in Tom Ripley's head for quite a while. I might kind of interchange and conflate the different um, versions of this uh, going forward. Let's I mean, being in Tom Ripley's head, watching this movie, that's kind of a dangerous place to be. But um, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to you filling me in on some of the blanks of the background because I mean, I've not read the book. I hadn't seen this movie until this watch through, but I have a confession. I've not seen the Matt Damon movie. I was going to watch it in comparison to this, but I just didn't have the time. I still will watch it, but 
Sure. And both of them are fairly lengthy movies that are kind of heavy. They're not just throw on in the background kind of a thing. They're very character focused and nuanced. And I was really happy with that. Like I said, that was one of the things that I was kind of looking for of like modern sensibilities of like interesting deep characters. And I think one of the things that we want to kind of do with this is if we're going to find new, you know, new movies to us, I think we want to kind of level set around what some of the comparable, more famous or more recognized movies from that era are to kind of level set on where our movie kind of fits in with what was the big things at the time. So this should be a a common thing going forward on the show, but the top box office movies of that time are quite a bit more famous and, you know, remembered, I would say number one, Spartacus. Stanley Kubrick. Yep. Um, which he basically disowned. That's a, an aside. Um, Two, which is an interesting, I would say, partner to this, Psycho. Yeah, that that when I hear the word the the year nineteen sixty, and you ask me to think of film, Psycho is the first thing that always comes to my mind. Yeah, and then you know those are the two big ones going down from there: Exodus, Swiss Family Robinson, The Alamo, The World of Susie Wong, which I was not familiar with. Going down further, you have your Academy Award winning picture of the year um the apartment um what a lovely film that is love that movie by the way right uh and then oceans 11 kind of really rounding out the top 10 for notable movies but i think that's kind of like an interesting level setting thing because you kind of get your crime movies of the box office splash one which is like oceans 11 and like murder character driven psychopath um, right psycho right so i think it's kind of an interesting time frame for this interesting french take to kind of live in yeah and i'm I'm curious as to how this came about only because you said you read the book and you've dived into the material this is not a french property right this was written by someone who's not french no, I'm uh, Patricia Highsmith. I'm right. pretty sure she's an American and uh, she's very recognized. Like tons of her material uh, have been made, uh, notably Strangers on a Train, I think was the one that predated yes, I, this. Yes, I, I know I've heard her name before. I just didn't know in connection to what. Yeah, and quite frankly, a huge Tom Ripley universe of books after. This was the first book of like four, five more which it's kind of like this book was so interesting, kind of perfect as itself. I didn't have much interest in pursuing the character anymore. So I think I'm done with that, but it's a very interesting book and it, it makes a lot of sense for it to be put into a movie. And I would say the character stuff in the book, and we'll get into it is felt kind of ahead of its time and, and like really, really interesting. Yeah, there are things that come up in this movie that I was surprised was in a movie in 1960. But, And I think there's stuff in here that I'm not surprised it's in a movie in 1960. Maybe more of the stuff that was omitted or how they changed stuff from the source material. And I want to be very careful here in how we look at the movies um, and the book, because they're all different pieces of art. Right. I don't want to be that snob saying the book is just always better. It just isn't right. They're two different mediums. You have to tell stories 
fitting um, the film medium versus a book medium. But there are some core elements there that are interesting. Right. And like I said, I, I, I do want to hear about how some of the stuff from the book translated to this, because I mean, in, in reading up, doing a little research, I, I, I knew that this was not originating from a French property or a French book or French literature. So I'm kind of curious to see, was there anything culturally that was different from what the original book was into this movie? If I had to kind of guess, like reading about the, um, the director going into this, I think that kind of morally flexible um i'll give it very generously that kind of a character i think that character study is what appealed to the very french kind of mindset right of that time of exploring that element so do we want to kind of like start working our way through the plot and start talking about how the characters kind of interact right immediately i would say from the, the beginning of the movie Sure, we could do that. I, I just one more question. Any idea why this was called Purple Noon? Um, yes and no. The title is a lift from a poem. Okay, just something about a, a a purple noon. I think thematically, it's put in there because the French title is uh, Plan Soleil. Soleil, uh, f- yeah, full sun, right, bright sun. Because this is one of the things is like, this is like the direct opposite of a film noir, right? It's not shadowy. It's in harsh daylight. No, everything Italian sunlight. All the, all, yeah, all the action, including, you know, when we get into the murders here, all happened in broad daylight. Right. So I think it's, it's a, a cheeky kind of a thing of, you know, it's all this horrible stuff happening and this deceit and these vile crimes happening in broad daylight. So it's um, during the brightest part of the day, a dark theme happening in it. Right. Like a murky noon, but yet in bright sun. Right. So I think it's like a, a, a play on that. No, that makes sense. I was just curious. We could dive in. Right. So right off the bat will be one of the big things that I'll kind of point out of like, it's interesting. The, the books and the 1990s movie show all the the background of Tom Ripley being in the United States and being kind of a low-level, probably mostly harmless sleaze, doing like low-level kind of scammy stuff, but not overtly like wildly criminal, but like call scam kind of stuff of like your warranties expired kind of 1950s version stuff in the book. So, so the book starts off with him having the penchant for crime. It, the book literally opens of him running from a, a bar, going to another worrying that police are following him. Very and you never quite know why. And you, you find out it's like low level mail fraud bullshit. See, that's right. so cool because, I mean, I don't want to get ahead of what, what what you're trying to set up, but you don't get that from the beginning of this movie. You start this movie and you basically know nothing about Tom Ripley other than the fact that he's American and he was apparently sent by some guy's father over to bring him back to San Francisco for money. But yeah, you so know nothing about him. The, the real high-level plot, 
a rich playboy, Dickie Greenleaf or Philippe Greenleaf in this movie is, uh, you know, the, the playboy son of a shipping magnate in the U S and he just goes off, screws off to Europe to pursue his half-assed artistic career. And the dad wants somebody to go over and convince the son to come home. And he stumbles on Tom Ripley to go over there thinking that Tom Ripley was a great old friend of his. And depending on the version, there's some level of truth to that too. They were complete strangers. The movies, the the books all kind of play around with that a little bit. doesn't really Mm -hmm. matter, but the, the father sends Tom Ripley over to try and ingratiate himself with um, Greenleaf, the son to come home to his mother and the book and the talented Mr. Ripley 1990s version show that in him going over there. And the subversion to what you might expect is there isn't a big reveal that, you know, I'm over here um, playing your father's thing. Tom Ripley basically comes up to him right away and goes, Hey, my dad, your dad sent me here. Let's, let's screw around with him and steal some money from your dad and live uh-huh. up on the French, on the Italian coast. So he lays all his cards out on the table immediately. Right. Which to maybe this film's credit, Purple Noon, you jump to them straight in Rome. I think oh, yeah. No, Rome, right? this Just is like in media res. It's, it's like in the middle of action, they're on their vacation. And like I said, it's so interesting to know that the book opens with him having a background in, in, in petty crime, because like I said, you start this movie and you don't, to, at least to me, who, to someone who's not even seen the 90s version, he's kind of a blank slate, Tom Ripley. Yeah, and where the true interest and where it is, in my mind, totally worth someone's time to watch this movie, watch the other one and read the book, because they are three different interpretations of the same character. And that's where it's like, there's no value to it. I don't think any one of them is better, but I think there's fundamental differences between each one of them. And it's really yeah. interesting. It's really, really interesting to me. I got like excited of like seeing how each one of these eras, cultures, times, you know, uh, or, uh, mediums decided to interpret that. So they, when they're in Rome, I think you start seeing some of the immediate like um, themes of the movie come up. And I think you start seeing some clear character stuff. Philippe Dickey Greenleaf in this. You see pretty much immediately, I think, he's a real bastard. He is, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he starts off kind of like a you know a, a drunk frat boy kind of type and then just devolves from there. Yeah, and like one of the first like true character things you see of him is him and Tom. They're in Rome just having a, a guy's weekend, screwing around, cavorting, getting drunk, you know, just blowing money. They interact with a blind man on the street and they they don't they're not cruel to him per se but they give him some money to take his cane and then just kind of behind his back kind of i wouldn't say directly mock him but it's one of those themes of the movie emerges immediately of uh identity fluidity theft yeah you're at right yeah, and then they immediately turn around, take that kid, and use it to start pulling their own tricks, including trying to pick up women. Yes, and how uncomfortable did you get with how it was Philippe 
Tom Ripley and that woman and how they were just making out in that car- carriage of the third I, wheel of Tom Ripley in there. You know, I it was strange. I, I'll, I'll give it that much. But I also kind of watched it on its own merits because I didn't know if that was more of a time thing. I didn't know if it was more of a, a European thing where something like that is seen as less um, risque or taboo. But looking at it from, you know, obviously an American perspective, yeah, it's a little weird. Yeah, it was Tom's just kind of third wheeling, literally coming over the top of the woman trying to like. I mean, it's a menage a trois kind of thing. Kind of, yes. But this is where like some of the movie's sexuality, I think, did get hung up on the time, even with it being French. See, and it's so funny, you know, I don't mean to take us off track, but you mentioned sexuality. And I'm kind of curious to see if the other versions of, of the of this material kind of touches on this when i first start when i saw you know philippe and, and tom interacting with each other and kind of uh palling around together you know they both come on screen their their clothes are kind of open their shirt you know shirts are unbuttoned down and stuff like that and it's not like i try to read a gay subtext and everything but there was definitely i almost kind of wondered if they were bi you know they have so, kind of this uh they, they, they their interactions are are not sexual, but I, I felt like there was some innuendo there for 1960. So we're going to go all over on this podcast, but I'm happy to jump into this now because this might be the the main discussion of the podcast, right? Because that is a huge, huge element. Okay, to, so I'm, I'm glad stories. I wasn't. I'm glad I wasn't just reading into it because I was definitely picking it up. No, so I wanted to ask you. It's one of my notes because I was going to ask you to like apply your well-tuned gaydar to this yeah. situation of now cutting beyond, you know, jumping beyond just this initial interaction. There is a number of scenes where that type of thing can be kind of interpreted in here. And I went through and read some historic um, uh reviews in the movie from different times and i'm curious to like see where we line up on this so just staying within purple noon where do you think tom's sexuality lies and where do you think um philippe's lies because i don't think there's any wrong answer this is now really in the realm of your and my interpretations so the way it played out to me was i think tom's sexuality kind of goes where the wind takes him because his that sticks with his character throughout he kind of does things impulsively and just kind of but he's so good at what he does that he's able to pull it off but the way i i interpreted their relationship at the beginning was that they're obviously piling around together i felt like tom was more in love with philippe than philippe was in love with tom uh I, i felt it was more unrequited the way i view philippe is that he's just a playboy kind of like you said, a kind of a bastard who, you know, probably I think was aware <laughs> that Tom was harboring something for him and mm-hmm. kind of just played along with him just to fuck with him kind of thing. Because he's we obviously find out he's in some kind of relationship with this woman, Marge. So I, I think he's doing I think Philippe is doing it for the attention. I genuinely think that Tom might might swing both ways, depending on how the mood strikes him. So specifically in there, the scene where after they get back from their boys weekend in Rome, one of the scenes is you see Philippe go back to 
in this what fiance serious girlfriend right like right. he has a boat named after marge right they have their interaction presumably you know have sex whatever during that time tom goes off to philippe's room to dress like him in his in philippe's yeah. clothes and does like a it's i think one of the more standout scenes of the movie he takes on tom's care or um, philippe's character in the mirror and starts making out with an, a reflection of himself. Right. Did you interpret that as like a sexual element to it or more like creepy psycho kind of, this is just unsettling rather than clear sexual innuendo. I took it as it's hard to say. Cause I took a little bit of both and I know that's kind of a cop at answer, but I did feel that this was showing some kind of obsessive, you know, thing that Tom has where he's basically worshiping the ground that Philippe walks on to the point where he wants to be him. Because like I said, in this movie, you have no inkling that he has a background in crime the way you do in the book. I think if I had read, if I had had that information, I would have thought of it differently. Yeah. And so I have like so many thoughts about this. I couldn't be more happy that this was a movie we selected first, but hopefully I have enough focus to hit everything. And then the other one was I read a review, a content, a a near contemporaneous review, I think by Roger Ebert talking about once they get onto the boat, the sailboat, he, he says that like the gay subtext here is so strong. It's clear that Marge is the third wheel to the relationship and how Tom and Philippe interact as the true relationship there and yeah. how they like bicker so much with that. It's like a lover's bickering. And this is where I'll be kind of honest. I really did not get um, gay vibes from Tom in this at all. If anything, I thought he was playing it totally straight. Now, would, is that because you had previous knowledge of the character, though? So that's where it's interesting where, again, I don't think any of these interpretations are wrong. No, no, of course not. In the book, the, the author, Highsmith, goes out of her way to say that she does not think Tom Ripley is gay. Right. The thing is, like, this is I think we talked about this on UP2. At a certain point, characters can kind of become their own thing and they go beyond just what the, the author says. So respecting her i think she's wrong i think tom ripley in that is gay but maybe very focused and that he's a dicky or philippe a sexual right he's in love with one specific person and that's tom or, uh, it's, it's dicky sorry right. excuse me the names no no i i i i, I get you I, i'm just saying like i even though you say that you didn't really pick up on that, this movie, there's some level of infatuation. Oh, I think Tom has with, with Philippe. Now, whether you want to call it, you know, sexual attraction or not, I guess we can be of two minds here. I saw it, but I, again, I have less context of the character than you do. And then the 1990s version, it's hitting you over the head with it. Tom Ripley is gay (laughs) in that movie. Like there's, you know, no subtext to it. It's, it's overt, which is fine. And that's where I said, it's just three interpretations, it's an interpretation, of the same character, yeah. which is 
awesome. It, it's exciting to watch that, right? But clearly, but, there must be something there because I, I'm not the only one that saw it. <laughs> even if so, you, even if you and I disagree, other people have seen it. Oh yeah, no, it it, it totally could be there. It's it, it there is definitely versions of it there. But I think a lot of that infatuation, and this is where I'll like one of the few times where I'll say the movie completely misstepped because one of the big things in certainly the book because it's omniscient first person you're in tom ripley's head so you're hearing all his internal thoughts that's where okay. it's like it's different medium so you you have to show things and do things different right but one of the central things of that is he is from a poor american with a capital a american background and one of the huge elements of the book is he's in love with tom but also in love with tom's lifestyle you mean the, you mean the Dickie. Europe, oh dick yeah sorry the names with dicky or philippe's lifestyle so much in the european like elitism and that whole scene he's in love with that as much and the same as the individual and i don't think he can separate them mm-hmm. and where i think this movie kind of is wrong or you know it's unfortunate the movie is outrageously every character is french right and that is something like you can't quite get around that that whole element of just that allure of living in Europe and being part of that living European style of like the dirt yeah. or American. They're already that. I mean, that's kind of tough. The less I sound like a, you know, stereotypical American, the better. But I mean, I kind of had to suspend disbelief because I knew, cause just based on the description of, of the movie that Tom is supposed to be American. Oh, they um, all are. That's the thing. See, I didn't get that. Marges. I, 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 got, I knew that Tom was supposed to be American, but I thought the rest of the characters were European. No, like all the principal characters, it's Marges like from Ohio, right? Um, Dickie is San Francisco uh, or Philippe. That's the thing. It's like, man, like why did they have see, to see, change but, it to Philippe and make him even more French? <laughs> Right. See, but I, I'm not sure, and I'm not saying that they couldn't do it, but just by it being a byproduct of being a French movie and a French production, I don't know how you could have avoided that. It, it's one of those things where you kind of have to just roll of it. I did. It's, it's I did. a whole element to the character of like, it's it's intertwined with the sexuality. It's the cultural difference too. Okay. It's, it's just like, well, that's just unfortunate. It's just something that they couldn't quite incorporate. Yeah, that's, that, that's the thing is like you, you mentioned that he that, that there's a cultural difference that he ended up falling in love with. You really don't get that in this. I mean, right. I, I got the fact that he was American, quote unquote American, but nothing about his um, his uh, lifestyle difference except for the fact that I think his uh, Philippe's friend at one point just says he's a he's a charlatan and lives from dollar to dollar or something like that or doesn't have any money. Right, which is something in all the versions that's kind of a known open secret, right? Like he is. He's 
got no money. And it's like, but that's like the joke that they're collectively playing on Greenleaf's father. Right. But that's the like, only reference that you get into this movie that he may be of a different financial class. So really. Yeah. There's like an interesting story. I wanted to kind of ask, like, this is where I kind of, it, it, I want to talk about um, Philippe's character here mm-hmm. uh, because I was really thrown off by one conversation. So it's when they're in the galley having uh, lunch, dinner, whatever. Yeah. And Tom is telling a story about him and Philippe growing up and he was the poor kid on the wrong side of the track being friends with the rich kid. And the whole time he's not knowing how to use a knife. Right. And at a certain point, Philippe corrects him on how to use the knife, shames him in front of Marge. And by the way, just as an aside, Tom does a cool F you after he gets shamed and embarrassed. He stands up, takes off his shirt, reveals his Adonis like body and beauty. And yeah, there, there, there's, there's a lot of shirtless men in this movie. I was very into that. Oh, quick aside, every review I've ever read of this talks about how beautiful um, Tom Ripley's the actor is Elaine Delon. I think mm-hmm. are did he do it for you? I gotta ask. I mean, he's attractive. I mean, I was I was entertained. <laughs> right, but I just like that. Like, that's cool direction of just, all right, you embarrass me in front of this girl. I'm going to take off my shirt. And yeah, I want to say, I want to say he spends half the movie either with his shirt off or open. <laughs> I, From what I can tell, not, penny, not many people were complaining about him. He is a no. very handsome Frenchist, right? Right. So, um, in that interaction though, after he leaves, Philippe is talking to Marge and he says, oh yeah, that story was bullshit. I don't know him. Like, so it's like, wow, what, what is this relationship that Philippe is pursuing on this? Because to whose benefit was Tom telling that story purely to Marge? Because in that interaction, Tom knew it was bullshit. Philippe knew it was bullshit. And presumably everybody there knows Marge would be keyed in that that story was bullshit. So it's like, I don't think this is miswriting by any means, but it's just like, that is so weird that Philippe is allowing this crazy charade to go on. So is he just keeping Tom around just a F with his father? Does he like having this weird potentially because at this point, his, the danger of Tom isn't evident, right? So, like, where where is Philippe's motivation in keeping this? Probably he agrees with Freddie. This you know leech, like around. It's like it's like it, it added just such a weird, interesting layer to Philippe as well. See, to me, it was it, that, that's why I say I think it was kind of a vanity thing on his part. I don't think when I felt like Tom had some kind of attraction to. Philippe, I think Philippe just liked the attention and the fact that Tom seemingly worshipped the ground that he walked on. And so that he could keep this, you know, popper around as kind of a pet. I think you're totally right, because the way I was interpreting that, I think there's that sycophant thing of just wanting to have that audience. I also looked at it because this version of Dickie, Philippe Dickie, mm-hmm. is by far the biggest bastard of any of the three of them because he is just so cruel 
Yeah, I don't movie. get the, the next part of the movie that we're going to talk about. A, where he he basically almost maroons Tom, and then B throws out Marge's manuscript. I don't understand why he did that. Either of those things. No, I mean that's like this is where. And he I, is I a had tough to, character. And I had to rewind it because I was wondering if I had missed something or I didn't read. Because I, I, you know, I'm actively paying attention to this movie because I have to read the subtitles. So I kept wondering <laughs> yeah. if I if I had missed something. No, it, it, he's just meant to be, or you know, he's portrayed. He's written as much more of a bully, brute, just impulsive asshole, right? Yeah. Where, I struggle to see the charm of his character in this other than just the money. Right. Because he, the first thing you see before you're introduced to Marge is him making out with a stranger in Rome, essentially right after he buys the cane from the blind man, you know, encourages Tom to mock him, I suppose. Right. But, but even then I was kind of like, well, he may just be sleazy. He's, I mean, at that point, I'm just thinking drunken frat boy on vacation, not necessarily like an out and out bastard, but just kind of a sleaze. It's here where it takes a really hard turn for me. Oh, yeah. Like the um, so immediately after that, just shaming Tom, who he knows is a stranger again, just such a weird thing. Tom goes up, screws up steering their the boat that the three of them are on. And as I would say, kind of like it was punishment, right? It was a cruel, I guess, prank. He throws Tom or gets Tom onto the little dinghy and then maroons him, you know, fifth, you know, a hundred feet behind the ship on a little dinghy in full sunlight and basically allows Tom to get horribly sunburned and sunstroked. Yeah. Right. So this kind of begs the question here. Because, again, comparing to the books and to the 1990s, I would say the 1990s movie helps the Dickie character quite a bit because he's portrayed by a young godlike Jude Law, Law, which, you know, as somebody with an unblemished record of heterosexuality, oh, my God, is Jude Law beautiful in that movie. (laughs) Right. And he is super charismatic. And the Dickie character in that is somebody who is magnetic, like incredibly charming beautiful money the life of a party will be the guy up on the stage like literally in the movie he's the guy at the party on top of the stage singing and gets people up there okay but he's like a star that burns brightly everybody wants to be friends with him and then he gets tired of somebody and then casts him away okay that's that's the tom thing that's one of the precipitating events of tom killing dickie in that movie is the 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 beautiful light of Tom move or, or of uh, uh, Dickie turned away from him. Okay, well, I'm still gonna. You know what? Just talking about this, I'm still gonna watch that '90s movie just so that I can have some comparisons, some background. That's because that's very it. interesting. Oh, I watched it with my wife. She loved it and wants to read the book now and go back in the reverse of the way that I would. I went through everything here, so totally stands up and just in different interpretations of every character. And I don't know how much we'll talk about Marge because in purple noon, she's kind of here. She's either here nor there. She's kind of, she, she's a background character. And yet I feel really bad for her because I, whatever ends up happening, she ends up losing. 
<laughs> yes. And in this one, I kind of look at her as just a pawn. The book, she was an obstacle. And then the third one, she actually has some agency because, you know, just, right. you know, better, quite frankly, women characters. Uh-huh. <laughs> Even if they were written by a woman originally, they kind of got better over time. Let's just be real. I mean, because in this, she gets screwed around so bad. Like I said, in this next scene, for whatever reason, Philippe throws out the manuscript that she's been working on and. and Oh, just a whim, like spoiled brat kid. Yeah. Right. It's just. He thought it would be funny to destroy her work, which, by the way, another thematic thing. She's writing a book about a um, a monk who changed his identity. Just as mm-hmm. like, yeah, that's a nice bit of that subtle theme. detail. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of neat. But so I think we're coming up to like the big turning point in the movie, right, is. To say it overtly, like after uh, Marge is dismissed, Tom kills Dickie and or Philippe in this. And I wanted to ask you here because I think you kind of mentioned it before. You said that Tom maybe acted impulsively or question about his premeditation. Well, that's what that's what I thought at first. But then right. it kind of takes an interesting turn where they start playing what Philippe thinks is kind of a game, a hypothetical game of if you were to kill me, how would you go about assuming my identity? Well, going back even further, because can we even go back yeah. to the, the Rome scene? The first inkling of like, what is Tom up to? The girl that they made out with dropped her earring into the carriage they, they were with. Tom sees that and just pockets it. And that was the thing. He put it into Marge's or um, Philippe's coat pocket. Marge finds it, thinks he's philandering, which, by the way, he was. Um, and that's one of the big events that you know the throws out the manuscript she takes off so tom did that and then when there's a scene where philippe is getting some of his allowance money out of a american express um you you do see tom clearly leering at it and i think you can do that thing of just the wheels are moving well see because i because at that point, I don't think I had uh, had assigned it to the wheels moving. I see it now in retrospect, but at the right. beginning of this, we're, we're told that uh, he's there to bring his, his Philippe back to San Francisco, and he's got what five thousand dollars or something waiting for him. Yeah, a p- so, cash on delivery of the son returning. So the way I interpreted those scenes at the beginning was the fact that this guy keeps screwing around. Tom has to go along with it, and he's taking these little things as recompense for the fact that we're still not back in San Francisco, and I still don't have my money. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. I, and now, but in retrospect, I see what you're saying. So this is where there's like that really interesting difference between the different media, because in this one, when you downplay the the cultural jealousy, the sexual element so much that it may or may not be there open to interpretation. Right. I think then that changes characters motivations, because in this, my interpretation was that Tom was doing it purely out of money and a crime of opportunity with a great deal of premeditation because he right. engineered Marge's departure to get them alone on a boat in the middle of the, you know, the Mediterranean. And at that point he had seen the money he had been studying. He took some of the bank records, right. For Philippe. 
So he's already kind of engineering it in the, the book and the 1990s version in the book. So this predates the movie purple mm-hmm. nude, right? So mm-hmm. I think that's a more fair comparison. Tom and um, Dickie and that are having another boys weekend out and they um, are at an event and Dickie sees Tom watching a bunch of male gymnasts on the beach practicing. And he sees Mm -hmm. Tom leering at them and Dickie sees it. It is kind of lightly disgusted, but not overtly like, you know, casting him away. Mm -hmm. But then they go out onto the boat together, a little dinghy and Dickie breaks it to him that, Hey, it's been a great ride, pal. We're off on our own. You know, let's go take care of our own, you know, have our own fun, go our separate ways. It was real. And then just kind of on a whim, Tom goes, Oh, I'll kill him and take his identity. And then just brains him. Right. And then that's kind of it. It's like, so it's it's more impulsive in the book. It's impulsive. Yes. Impulsive in the book. But like seeing an opportunity in the impulse, the the third movie is pretty much clearly a crime of passion. Okay, right. So they hit all the spectrum. So in in Purple Noon, I think when they take down the the gay jealousy, the shunned lover kind of thing, and kind of pare that down so much, you have to work up the premeditated aspect of it. Yeah, I mean. I don't want to sound like I'm a dense movie watcher, but at the, I didn't, like I said, I didn't, I wasn't really putting two and two together with some of those earlier actions. So keep in mind, when, I've watched it twice and I read the novel beforehand. When right? he so decides to, ult, when they, when they start playing the hypothetical game, I was, I, I was kind of taken aback in, in the sense that like, I kind of felt like this desire to kill him kind of came out of nowhere because it wasn't really talked about before. I wasn't picking up on it. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, at first I was like, "Is he really? Is he? Is this revenge for him almost being stranded? Um, was he always thinking this?" And I, I, I learn more as the movie goes along, but it, but for here, it, it kind of came out of left field for me, which is why I, which is why I assigned the impulsive uh, moniker to him. Oh no, I think that's fine. But I think if it's this is where I think the movie is good enough with character stuff and subtle direction. I think there's enough of those hints early on because it's like at that point the earring. No, you're um, right. The thing you're right. is like yeah, it's it's general creepiness. It's going to be a tool in his pocket. He doesn't know where to put it in yet. But once he sees the writing on the wall that he's going to be cut off from the the philippe gravy train then it's pure premeditation right it's just dollars 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 <laughs> admittedly admittedly too not to sound too uneducated but i think i was so focused on reading what was being said that i was kind of missing the details of what was being done oh it, it, <laughs> no but to your credit like did you have any idea what the plot was or did you go into this completely blind i i mostly blind i knew it had to do with murder and, and identity theft but i didn't know much beyond that Right. So it is kind of interesting. Like there's another theme in this. Like, I don't want to sound like I'm too much of a film scholar, but no, this is good because you're picking up on the subtleties that I may not necessarily caught because I'm so I'm trying to absorb the story for the first time. So there's like maybe this is snobbery stuff, but I sense there's a theme that came out of like from the sea or on the sea. There's truth. 
So mm-hmm. when they're out on the boat, Tom is like overtly saying, I want to kill you and take your money. Yeah. Right? And, no, and then it kind of comes out of nowhere, or at least it did to me. Oh, it's wildly like, like, wow, they're just going to talk about this. <laughs> like, that's kind of crazy. And it's something that we see later in the film when he's walking through the fish market, things from the sea are like smiling and mocking him. Like, I don't know if that's like really? film nerd me thing, but when he's looking at like the, um, the rayfish, the, the, the rayfish. Oh, okay. Now I get why that scene was there. I think that's why it's there. Cause otherwise why was it there? Right? Like it's, he's looking at fish mocking him. Right. Cause they're from the sea and the sea holds truth. And then once they move to land, like all the, you know, once they go back to land, Tom is lying through his teeth constantly, just manipulating everybody. But on the sea, he was telling the truth. Uh huh. Like I, I don't know what to make of that, but no, it's a very that's a a very interesting theory. I like that. Right. So plot minutia here. He stabs Tom, or Tom stabs Dickie. Sorry, I'm a cup. I'm an IPA or two deep into this podcast, so it goes downhill from here. But he stabs him, wraps him up. Apparently, if you believe, like I'm convinced, half of movie trivia from old movies is apocryphal but apparently the whole thing about the storm and him falling overboard while trying to dispose of philippe's body was all improvised and he never tom's character was never meant to fall in the ocean and that was the actor who couldn't swim too well actually fell into the ocean who knows like you know you know every golden era hollywood actor did all their own stunts too it's all bullshit but who knows but anyhow uh, Philippe is supposedly disposed of into the drink and Tom takes him, takes the boat back in. And the back half of the movie here is a lot of cat and mouse. Like, I don't know how much we need to kind of talk about it. Cause it's quite a bit more plot and well, it's kind of like intrigue kind of stuff. Yeah. It's intrigue. And it's kind of like separate instances of him almost being caught. And him finding a way to, to evade capture and move on. Right. So this is where like the, the themes of like the, um, I keep wanting to say gender fluidity, but identity fluidity right. come into it quite a bit. Right. Cause once he goes in, this is now the premeditated plan of him of I'm going to take on the identity of Philippe cash his money you know, send out a per impersonating letters to string Marge along, eventually leading to dumping her, making it, you know, look like I'm taking off, blah, blah, no, blah. And all that I just, I, I did like the cleverness of some of it. Like the fact that he took all the time and uh, he realized all he really had to learn was how to write his signature the way Philippe does. The rest, right. the rest can be taken care of by typewriter. Right. Like that part, I actually really did like. Yeah, because... I really liked that. In the book, it's like a throwaway sentence. Like he took time to recognize or realize how to copy the signature. This was like I one of my favorite things about Coen Brothers movies are their procedural elements of just like No Country for Old Men of how slow that is of just watching everybody do every step of the the process. And I love that. Right? Yeah, I love I loved how in, in this movie you you saw it like in that little room how he he had he kept having to write the signature hundreds and hundreds of times before he eventually got it to a place where it looked pretty spot on. Right, and I'm like I'm not sure I would necessarily 
miss it if it wasn't there. Like, okay, he learned how to forge his, his signature. Fine. But I appreciate it when it's shown to be in there and the work that was well, put into I, it. I kind of like it just from a character standpoint because, I mean, of course, the, the original source material is called The Talented Miss Ripley. And throughout the course of this movie, as he's evading capture, he's coming up with things on the spot just because he's that good and he's that clever. So I kind of like seeing a moment where he had to actually coach himself to do something. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like I said, the procedural stuff. So I think the, you know, he, he strings Marge along, he comes back, suggests that, you know, Philippe just wants to live in Rome for a while, you know, needs their time separate, all that kind of stuff. Cause it, it's a, it's obviously like a, a fiery relationship and, Right, and he's coming up. He's coming up for a reason. Coming up reasons why Philippe is not. She's she's not going to see him. Right, and just trying to keep those identities while constantly kind of the cash in on the money and just living this two lifestyle of wanting to be in the body of Dickie, but going back into Tom when he has to to just cover his ass. Right, right with other people, and I guess the next big milestone event there is people are there's no red flags in this movie. Philippe is such a bastard. Like, I don't think this was maybe that hard of a, a thing to swallow for people. Like, yeah, he's just going to fuck over Marge and leave when he wants to anyhow. Like, well, I, I mean, think one of the last, like, what I, like I said, one of the last things he did when, when Marge saw him was he destroyed her work. So, Which, I mean, the fact that he's abandoning her is not that far out from what he was doing. Right. And it's kind of one of those unfortunate things of like, you know, not every woman character has to be super strong. It's fine to have as characters for growth, somebody sure. not being strong, but she wants to get back with him right away, even though he was horrible, horrible to her. Horrible. At that point, there's no reason for her not to think he was cheating. He was. Yeah, <laughs> but know, they had so shown, they had shown him to be so sleazy and, and sort of manipulative that I didn't necessarily see it as a weakness on her part in the sense that I just felt like she was, he had manipulated her enough to believe that that's what she needed to do. Oh yeah. it Yes. In that regard, she is a character that's meant to be manipulated in this movie, which unfortunately those are real people in the world. Mm-hmm. But I think this character got a little bit better, right? With unfortunately Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> Because Tom eventually manipulates the shit out of her. Yeah, um, you know, when we get to Dickie, the climax, when we get to the climax at the end, I've got questions. Yes, that that that's more than fair. But the next milestone, I guess, is Tom as Philippe is living the life in this, you know, really gorgeous. Well, I will say, kind of gaudy slash gorgeous Roman apartment. By the way. One of the things in this movie shot in location on location in 1960s, 1959, Italy. Yeah, you can tell it's beautiful, right? Yeah. It's like you just want to be there. Like you can't beat it. It's yeah, it's no studio. It's just it's awesome. It's worth watching. Like I said, it's all broad daylight, super bright. It's gorgeous. The the Criterion Blu-ray is perfect. So Go watch it for beauty, if nothing. And actually, it was the Criterion transfer that's on Amazon Prime. So I got to see every bit of of detail. Mint. Right. So (laughs) he's living his life. And I think this is like a great scene. And the point, the the evidence that this is a really good scene is it's virtually identical in all three versions. 
is mm. when he's living in this apartment and one of the few people that could identify him easily and unmistakably as Tom Ripley, Freddie Miles. Yeah. The, like the fat Slav. They, they're always so brutal of how they describe this guy. Boorish American friend of um, Philippe shows up expecting to see um, Philippe in this apartment. And, and we've already Tom we, living in it. We've already learned from earlier in the movie though, that he, he doesn't like Tom at all. Oh, like, he hates he him. Outright, he outright distrusts him. Oh, Philippe might be, or not Philippe, excuse me. Freddie might be, Freddy. might be the most perceptive person yeah. in this. Cause he sized Tom up immediately as a, a leash, a crappy person. Yeah. Freddie is just boorish and, you know, kind of the loud, obnoxious asshole of a group, right? You know, ugly, rich money. Yeah. You kind of get that here. I feel like it's a little bit muted compared to probably what's in the book and what's in the other movie. Oh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is this guy. Oh, is it Philip Seymour Hoffman? Oh, okay. he's he's I, I, awesome. That's per, that A, that's perfect casting, and B, I can see him being loud and boorish, playing so, that type. Oh, there's such it's a laugh out loud, hilarious scene. Or at least it was for me. In that version, um Dickie, Marge, Freddie, and Tom are all on the boat together. And Freddie and Tom are up on deck when Marge and Dickie are under in, in the cabin having sex. Mm-hmm. And Matt Damon's Tom is looking down through and just leering. And you could tell it's jealousy of how dare he touch that disgusting woman. Right. Right. And Freddie sees it and he just looks over and goes, Tom, how's the peeping going? <laughs> how's the how's the peeping going? And it's just Matt Damon doesn't respond to it. I am it's really just looking, it's, I I'm really looking forward to watching this nineties movie. If nothing if just not for the cast. I mean Oh, it's awesome. Philip Seymour Hoffman is would be perfect as this role. I can't wait to see that. Oh yeah, he yeah, he's perfect, right? But I I like Gwyneth Paltrow in movies. I hate her as a person, right? But she's she's good in this she's not untalented in movies we'll put it that way right but anyhow when freddie shows up this is a nicely suspenseful scene because freddie shows up and in every version of it he knows what's going on here well he disappears for enough of this movie that i forgot he existed and that when he shows up i was like oh fuck this is the one person that could fuck this up for time so this is something I see all over the place. People either saying it or not bringing it up. So I think they disagree at, at any point. Were you rooting for Tom Ripley? It's hard to, with just this version in mind, it's hard to say, I, I want to say yes, in the sense that it was exciting to see him try to evade and, and see him, uh, get away with stuff but i kind of feel like i got enough of his character where i could possibly be on his side but at the same time he's kind of more of a blank kind of sociopath in this one i'm I'm curious to see if other versions would make me feel more that way so it's tricky because one i'll kind of say i like matt damon and he has a tremendous amount of goodwill on my part as the person 
right? Like I like him right. as like a, a guy who shows up on talk shows. He's in enough movies that I adore, right? Yeah. So it's kind of hard to separate that. But the way he plays that character, that's also in there. But it's it's interesting to like the book, Purple Noon, and um, the Talented Mr. Ripley movie, the final one. We, we have here is Freddie, who is for everything that we know, he might be kind of a jerk, but he's not a bad person. Yeah. Per and his, his jerkish qualities. I mean, I, it's interesting to hear you say that I can see it, but it's not really emphasized in this movie. He's just another friend of Philippe's who really doesn't like Tom. I don't get the, the boorishness from him necessarily. Oh, you you got to watch the Philip Seymour Hoffman one. I know. They, they should have given I, him I, an Academy I, award. I, I know. I probably sound ridiculous saying this, but just in the context of this movie, I didn't see it as much. Sure. But like, He's a character, and in any sense, we have a guy now who we know murdered somebody in cold blood. Yes. And is now stealing money. Yet, I, th- you should be rooting against him. And in fact, I was, but because it's such like a well-constructed scene and contrived event, you kind of find, well, I found myself, I shouldn't project, I found myself like, oh, how is Tom going to get out of this? When I'm like, oh, That's wait, what I shouldn't be doing was. I shouldn't be doing that. That's kind of where I was. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily say rooting for him. I was very on the edge of my seat to see how he was going to manipulate his way out of this one, which it turns out he didn't. He needs to murder again. Yes. Yeah. He (laughs) didn't get anywhere close to it. Right. So it's like, and it's a cool thing because you, in all the versions, he gets Freddie out of the room and it's like, well, that's not going to be the final solution to this, but you know, immediate problem solved maybe i just gotta run off to another apartment yeah well i mean it looked like he was gonna get away with it and then the maid fucks it up right and then they go down and the maid who thinks that's dickie and or philippe up there confirms that it's you know it's oh that's mr green he's he's up there yeah yeah so freddie rushes back up and in the true impulsive backed into a corner murder tom has to kill him right? immediately no questions asked right just brains him with a buddha statue in almost this movie. i kind of wondered if he was just knocked out at first but i was like no that that hit him too hard at the neck oh and it's it, again just to that detail that's in every one of the movies i'm pretty sure is it doesn't kill him right away and Tom has to reach down and feel for a pulse. And in the book, because it's all internal, it's a thready pulse that he just watches go away. So it's yeah, not I, just... Yeah, I, I figured he kind of like bleeds out internally. Yeah, so it's like just that little detail of like, okay, the immediate murder, but it's also that follow through of like, I'm literally going to feel you die now. Right. And that's just, that's creepy. It's great, right? And then just that procedural stuff of... It's not just, you know, how many other movies in this time, like in Psycho, because we brought it up, do we see him dispose of what's her name's body after he stabs her in the shower? Yes, you do. Do we? Shit. Well, there goes my point. But you do, because <laughs> don't you remember the whole scene where he comes down and he wraps her up in the uh, shower right. curtain and then dr- drives the, the car into the swamp? I just watched that relatively recently and I forgot. But great, because that's. I think that's still kind of to the point of like the evolution of film at that point of like, it's not just an event. We have to watch him sit with this body for hours. (laughs) And it's just as suspenseful too, because I mean, you know, if you remember that scene from that movie, 
there comes a point where he drives the car into the swamp and then it doesn't sink all the way. So you wonder if it's going to, he's going to get caught or not. And then it ah, that's right. sinks. I forgot about that. That's awesome. Yeah. So same thing here. How is he going to get this body out of this room convincingly? Right. And by the way, another little, very interesting, astute, artistic, whatever direction. As soon as he kills him, he goes over to the window and watches a bunch of children play outside, kind of signifying like his loss of innocence. Just it's, it's you know snobbery, but there you go. It's it's just kind of nice attention to detail, right? It's that, the stuff you pick up on multiple. That movies. is cool. I mean, I kind of figured he did that too because for him at this point, murder is no thing anymore. You know, right? I mean? And again, just like the different mediums, like you kind of see it in this, in that he kills two people, and immediately afterwards, he just vigorously eats. Right. I think kind of showing the lack of um, conscience with right. it. Like after he kills Philippe, he eats an, an apple like an animal. After this one, he cooks, well, yeah, it all, it, cooks it, a the, chicken. The, no, this is it. where I say it all feels kind of impulsive. Like he, he's just it's all about the, the animal part of his brain, so to speak. So the really another cool thing here is you see it depicted here of him kind of internalizing and not really necessarily having that conscience in the book, you're internal, you're inside of his mind and he, you see, he has no, um, guilt over killing these two people. Yeah. No, none. He, he's worried that he'll get caught and have, right. And you know, I think that translates to here. That's, that's what I picked up on. Yeah. So that's here. The, the, and this is arguable of like, if it's doing the character, right. Matt Damon has monologues talking about his guilt and it's hmm. like, well, you feel for him. And that's like all that goodwill Matt Damon stuff is well acted, but it's like, should your perfect Tom Ripley be having that feelings or having those feelings? Cause the book, no, I it's I a mean, psychopath. I, he has, no I kind of, I, I kind of like the cold sociopath of, of just, having the impulse to to satisfy hedonistic things right so it's like it's the tom ripley for your your preference right so that's right. where it's each one of them are great and have their own value so you see that procedural thing of him carrying this big guy down dumping the body and then it's really that ratcheting of tensions because in you know comparison to philippe's body freddie's body's found immediately Yes. And then you get the. Because well, he kind of just dumps him somewhere. Yeah. Behind a crypt right, right. off the road. Tries half-assingly to make it look like he was mugged. Right. right. But I mean, I, I got the sense that, that that unlike Philippe, he really didn't care that much whether or not Freddie was eventually found. Hmm. Is that out of practicality or is that over care of the person? Because like him loving. Well, or... I kind of wonder if it's a little bit of both because uh, he needs to take up his, the next chapter in his fake Philippe saga, where he's now going to have a reason for Philippe to want to kill himself, quote unquote, because he committed this murder. So mm -hmm. in order for the story to be believable, they have to find the body you know, and, and make Philippe the, the number one suspect. So a lot of, again, a lot of intrigue comes out of this of like evading the cops because now 
he, he has to jump back and forth between Tom or um, uh, Philippe, depending on the circumstance of, you know, whether it's police interviewing him, whether it's Marge and that Marge. kind of thing. So it, it's, it's, it's interesting of how he's trying to navigate this to pivot the blame because people can connect Freddie wanting to go see Philippe. So Philippe. it's how, how do you make that look like Philippe killed him? It's not a, a plot hole, but one of the things when I was reading the book, I'm like, Oh, the immediate thing that could get out of this is if Tom said, yes, I was having a gay relationship with Dickie. Freddie found out. Dickie was so embarrassed by that. He killed him. Right. And then that would explain so much of this, but it would. I don't think Tom could do that because he's in denial over his sexuality throughout Mm -hmm. it as well. So I don't think that character, despite his cleverness and ability to lie, I don't think he would allow himself to tell that lie. So I don't think that was a plot hole. I think that's a character thing. Yeah, I, and honestly, I didn't even think of that. Like I said, I, I just figured after he murdered uh, Freddy that he started. He already started spitting the plot of what's going to happen next to quote-unquote Philippe and how he's going to be the number one suspect and he's going to feel so guilty that he kills himself and that way Marge or no one else asks any more questions about when is he coming back. And then he forges the, you know, last will and testament, the, the suicide confession, letter, suicide yeah. letter, saying that leaving all of his money to Marge. And then right. this is where uh, poor Marge as the, the third victim of the story, right? Basically, Tom then decides to go back to her and basically abuse and manipulate her into yeah this is the part that i just i had to kind of go with because i don't get how she changes here this is like again there's not many parts of the movie where i think are overtly wrong even the ending which is a wild difference from every other form of the media which we'll get into this part, I'm like, this is a bit of a stretch. Like, because I mean, especially considering what he does. At one point, she comes. He comes in when she's asleep, and starts macking on her, and somehow that translates to her, her turning around and forgetting about her supposedly dead fiance. And I'm not sure I'm able to reconcile this as like, other than saying, well, she's an incredibly abused character that's ripe to get abused again or that's ha- that has to be it because we have nothing else to go on or it's a plot shorthand reflecting the time well yes i mean outside of the movie yes that's true it, i'm talking about in in the context of the movie the abused woman is all we have to go on right and tom's put all his eggs in that basket that he can just go in there and manipulate her Right. Well, he, I mean, sadly, he's not wrong Oh, and because of what happens. Out. Yes. Oh, yeah. They they become a couple. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow. Right. And I mean, rapidly going to the end, I do have some like wrap up questions, but it's this is where I think the theme kind of emerges again, because it's kind of a throwaway line. It's much bigger in the book in the other movie that um, Philippe Dickey's father is coming in from the United States to close the affairs Mm -hmm. down. And part of that is selling 
the boat Marge, right? So right. as Tom and Marge are having seemingly Tom's now basically mooching off of Marge because she's the beneficiary of all the money from right. the inheritance of the presumed now suicidal Philippe. Philippe. Um, he's now living the gravy train off of Marge. It's mm-hmm. debatable whether I've, I looked at it as he has actually no feelings for her. It's just purely stealing her money. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I the way I look at him by the end of this movie is he's, he's someone contri- who's completely hedonistic that will do anything to satisfy that hedonistic impulse. Interesting. That's exactly what his character apparently evolves to in the other books. But um, it, word for word, that's how they, they describe his character. Um, so as they're celebrating having just, you know, gorgeous sunbaked thing, you know, you just see him soaking in his apparent victory. Mm-hmm. Um, Greenleaf Sr. is pulling Marge the boat, <laughs> the sailboat, out of the water into a dry dock. And it's like this was where it was like mind blowing to me. This was like genuine shock because this is such a departure from the book. What we thought philippe being just tied up bound in a canvas or a sail or whatever and thrown into the ocean when tom fell off uh during the storm this is where i wonder if it was actually improvised or part of the script because in all that screw up the corpse of philippe is actually got entangled into the propellers and the the rudder of the sailboat so when it's brought on shore the camera pans over and you can see the corpse heavily decomposed of Philippe is now being brought on the land from the ocean is coming. The truth to be revealed again. Yeah. And the last shot of the movie is the police at this point, who we now well know are calling over like the, the maid or whoever is attending to Marge and Tom to, you know, tell Tom there's a phone call. So while we don't see Tom be arrested, presumably he leaves the screen. You just see this beautiful Italian coastline as the last shot. Presumably he leaves to get arrested. Right. And he's captured for the murder. And you can only imagine Philippe, uh, Philippe's murder, Freddie's murder. It's all going to come to light. All the, the identity theft, all the, all that kind of stuff. It's just, it all will unravel in an instant. Mm-hmm. Which the Highsmith hated this ending from what I can tell, because she said it was cowardly people deferring to what the expectation of the time was for morality, because in the book, he cleanly and flatly gets away, gets away with it. Yeah, I was wondering if it had to do with the ties, because back at least during this time in America, there was the Hayes Code which is, mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but there was a certain code oh, yeah. that said that people who did wrong in the movies had to be caught or had their comeuppance by movie's end. Now, I didn't think that the French were bound to this, but from it feels like one of those endings. No, from the interviews that I read, it's it was the director saying that there has to be atonement for this, which to the the book, there is none. He has no guilt. He gets away scot free. Well, it's an ongoing and, series, so I would think not. Yeah, yeah. And, and you see him compartmentalize. Like at points, like he will catch him. You'll you'll catch him like attributing 
murder to somebody else. Like he was the one who did it, but he's blaming like um, uh, uh, Dickie for doing something when it was actually him. So you can see he's doing all this mental gymnastics to do it, but it was the director apparently making that decision that it had to be, uh, you know, there had to be some repercussions. It just struck me. It just struck me funny that, you know, the fact that the, 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 the corpse was still tied to the boat. He did everything else in this movie so well to the point where like he was, again, talented as, as the, as the original title suggests that I don't know. I don't buy that. He would make that mistake. Well, that's like the, that's interesting because it says one of the, the parts of the character where he talks about it. You, again, you, you benefit from the internal monologue, right? In the book, he talks about like, I have been so unlucky for so long. It's about time that just luck goes my way. And you do. Part of the reason he gets off in the books is just blind, dumb luck. Okay. Of incompetent Italian, you know, get, prosec- uh, you know okay. investigators it, and stuff. This is another instance where context would help, I suppose. Right. So, you know, the there's an element of that, but in the, the movie, it's a little bit more skill. It's characters not believing other ones like Marge never believes him in the third, in the, in the movie, like the Gwyneth mm-hmm. Paltrow's version. So that's where it's like, well, there's where her character is a little bit better. She sees through this shit by the end, but no, you know, people don't believe her. There's a lot more complexity to it that I don't want to ruin it for you because I'm excited. Like, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see the movie. I'm going to check it's, it out it's, later. It's a third version of this, which is right. I don't want to say better or worse. It's just different and it's right. good. Right. So the, I don't know. Do we have anything on here? Cause there's one like hanging thread question. I kind of want to ask you that's more generalized. Sure. Go ahead. Cause we're at the end of the movie. Yeah. Because that's the end of it. And again, it's like th- that one is like the, the difference on the ending. That's one of the things I don't want to say it's flatly better in the book versus something else it's just different Mm -hmm. right and it's totally up to your interpretation right because i don't think it changes the core of a character where i think the frenchiness (laughs) (laughs) you know changes the core of a character and like philippe dickie it's they're totally different characters but shit they're named different right so it's like whatever this is like it's just how fate changed things right so it's like I think that's fair. It's it's up to your preference, right? Whatever. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of the bad guy winning occasionally because that's what happens. I do too. Right? It's, that's just real, uh-huh. <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but in general, less so maybe in this one, but I was just curious because one of the things that we talked about in our first episode is just looking at older films and how they stand the test of time. And in this one, maybe one of the tropes in old films is the gay villain and the shorthand of the effete, the effeminate, the sissy bad guy as Mm -hmm. code for being bad. And it was like shorthand. Like you see it in a lot of Disney villains. Yeah. Lispy kind of things. I was just Mm -hmm. wondering, like, I don't know if we go anywhere with this discussion, but like, did you think that's like an element of this? And is there an issue with that? Because I think it's fair to have gay people as villains. Oh yeah. Not be villains because they're gay. No. And, and like, even though I had some of those readings from, from Tom at the beginning of the movie and kind of throughout, 
I didn't feel like that was the reason they made him a villain. I think that, that he, they explained his psyche well enough to where I believed, you know, I bought what he was doing and I feel like he wasn't just, I, they made it fit into his character. So no, that doesn't bother me at all in this movie. But so this, and I would, I would, again, my viewpoint, I don't think the Matt Damon one is problematic in any way either. I don't right. think this is problematic in any way either. I don't think Psycho's version was problematic either because that wasn't. There's a lot beyond it beyond just transvestites a murderer because yeah. he's a transvestite. Yeah. And I, I see people talk about that with Silence of the Lambs. And that it's repugnant, but I'm like, but again, that doesn't, I mean, I, I, again, I'm not part of, I'm not trans. So who, who am I to say, but that doesn't, it doesn't bother me in that movie because they're not saying that he's evil because he's trans. Right. So I just wanted to kind of bring that up because it's just such a, a thing in this series of movies and no, it's it, right. It's, it's well, a core but, element of the character. But like you said, oftentimes when they, that trope does come up, the, the villain is kind of bumbling and incompetent and is hoisted on his own petard. And even though Tom does get caught supposedly by the end of this movie, not once did I ever think of him as incompetent. And back to the end of this one, it's like they do leave a little bit of wiggle room of like, he is the talented Mr. Ripley. Maybe he still has a, a trick up his sleeve. Yeah. Probably maybe there's a not. way out of that. No, probably not. But I mean, it is left ambiguous enough. Right. So, well, I think we got through it. So do we want to wrap up like final thoughts and ratings? Sure. I've kind of dominated and led the discussion. So Matt, I, I definitely want to have you go first on this one well you know what it's i'm very glad that i got to see this movie it was it was a movie that i had to really kind of dive into if not for anything else and i had to read you know it was one of those ones where i had to read the dialogue because i don't speak french um as much as i would like to um but i'm glad i'm glad we had i saw this movie i'm glad i had the the bigger context discussion with you because it made me appreciate this movie in in a new light I enjoyed it, but I was confused by a lot of things until we had this discussion. And now I appreciate the nuances a lot more. And I'm excited to see the the 90s version, if, if, if just for nothing else. And like you said, it's a different interpretation of the material. And I think the material at its core is good. I can see why there's a series based off of this character. Mm-hmm. So do you think it stands to the test of time? I mean... Is there value to revisiting this with the modern eyes? Yes, I, I would say so. I mean, again, get over your aversion to, to foreign films. Uh, it shouldn't be an aversion anyway, in my opinion. Uh, oh, yeah. Because I think I think what, what makes or breaks a, a good movie is, is the story. And I think the story is good. And I think it, it holds up. Yeah, so jumping into my final thoughts, like I really enjoyed this. And I'll admit maybe I did things the wrong way because I approached it kind of chronologically and maybe I should have better served for the the point of the, the podcast of watching Purple Noon first. But I think each one of these are super interesting. I couldn't be happier with this first selection because I think there's a lot of depth to it. And the movie by itself, while I think there are a couple, like I would say kind of tough to argue against flaws, which you can't necessarily get around the Frenchiness of it, you know, a, a couple things here or there, but beyond that, it's a really interesting interpretation of the source material. 
I'm not going to go anywhere near the argument because I see people just matter of factly saying this one's ver- better than the the Matt Damon one. I don't think that's true at all. I think both are excellent. They're just two different, different. things, right? And I'm not going to rank them. I think that's a a waste of an you know energy doing that. Watch both of them. And to the the question I posed you, I think this absolutely stands the test of time. It's an interesting character portrayal. It's a it's a really interesting and meaty subject to go back and look at him. And hopefully we did a bit of justice to that of his interpret, you know, his motivations to a lesser degree, Philippe slash Dickie's character and what his motivations were in that. And yeah, I think this is exactly the kind of thing I was looking for from this of just not the, you know, the mugging mobster movies from like the forties to like, real depth of modern kind of filmmaking, but deeper in there. So this is a a huge win. I couldn't be happier that I stumbled on this as part of this podcast. Yeah. Huge recommend for me. All right, Matt. I think that really ties this one off for June. Should we look forward to what we're going to be doing in July? Yes, because let's read out the selection for July because in July it's my turn. Right. So to remind everybody, the process was the schedule for movies is out for July on Turner Classic Movies. I did the random number generator pre-screen for movies that are reasonably accessible to actually watch. And now it's Matt's turn to pick from the five here. He knows what these five were, but we'll find out live what his selection is. So the five movies that we have to select from for july are 1963's captain sinbad sinbad takes on an evil wizard to save the princess that he loves i'm gonna go right out on a limb matt and say this is the one i'm definitely hoping for (laughs) 1947's they won't believe me a philandering playboy with a wealthy wife and two girlfriends ends up on trial for murder when two of the ladies turn up dead, and he's the most likely suspect. 1940s, New Moon, a revolutionary leader romances a French aristocrat in Louisiana. Man of the People from 1937, an Italian immigrant studying the law, gets mixed up with crooks. And again, I couldn't be happier with how these two selections worked, because we have... Uh, four movies I am not really familiar with, and then kind of the ringer selection, which mm-hmm. is 1968's Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> An eccentric inventor uses his flying car to free a kingdom of children from oppression. Which sounds much more epic than the movie actually is. Which now that that um, brings into question my prediction because i was predicting you were going to go to the maybe some comfort food of chitty chitty bang bang okay because i just showed your hand there a little bit because i was going to ask you like so you you were hoping you're hoping for sinbad but i was going to ask you to make your prediction because i i made my prediction last month for you yeah so my hope and i think this is something we can do hope versus prediction just trying to guess mm-hmm. where maybe our our trends emerge coming from this is I hope it's Captain Sinbad because like I think we want to maybe cover our bases on like deep discussions versus just goofy and I'm thinking 
1963's Captain Sinbad might check the box and goofy. Um, but I do know you kind of like your classics a little bit of like, like I kind of said, maybe comfort food movies. Mm-hmm. And I thought Chitty Chitty Bang Bang might be checking the box in that way. And then the other three are kind of the wild cards. Well, I'm glad that I get to surprise you this month then, because, um, you, you know, uh, when I, I, I do like my, my, my cinematic comfort food, but I don't if listeners of UP2, let's go way back to and one of the episodes that we reviewed. Matt, you happen to know that I also like a few other genres. And one of them, one of our best discussions of that uh, series was when we did the episode for, Necess- for Necessary Evil. That's the mm-hmm. one where uh, we had to go back to uh, Oda was investigating a crime that happened on the station years past that Kira was involved in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we discussed the kind of style of, of that episode. It was a it was a neo noir uh, throwback to classic, uh, you know, the film noir of the forties. You know, a murder investigation, uh, kind of a whodunit sort of thing. So, with that in mind, my selection for next month is 1947's "They Won't Believe Me." Again, keeping the trend of picking obscure ass movies, pretty much guaranteeing nobody's going to pick but us. That, but in, in a sense, I mean, yes, we, we we might have months where we pick comfort food, but this was kind of the point too. Of, is oh no, exploring new things. I love this. I didn't want to watch Chitty Bang Bang, but I would have, and you know, happily watched it. Right. But no, this is like off the radar. Like this is the point. I could not be really ultimately happier that I have to watch something I never ever. Would have stumbled and, on. and again, this kind of ticks, you know, reading the, the, the short synopsis again, a philandering playboy with a wealthy wife and two girlfriends ends up on trial for murder when two of the ladies turn up dead and he's the most likely suspect. So it checks off what I think is going to be a noir film. It's a murder mystery. It sounds like there's like procedural law involved, which fits right into my 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 job. So th- when I when I was looking through the selections, that's the synopsis that spoke out to me the most. Oh, no, no. I'm going to have to look up and see if this is based on some pulp um, crime novel. It could, be. It, could be. it could be. It could be absolute trash. But you know what? I, I, it, it appealed to me. So I, no. I'm, I'm interested to check it out. I am all for this. Like, I'm hoping it's got a tight, like, you know, plot driven, just crime something. It makes a lot of sense. No, I'm excited for it. I'm going to be digging for it immediately so all right should we wrap it up yes let's wrap it up what a what a great first episode i think this is going to be a lot of fun uh, oh if yeah this discussion was anything to go by i it might be the outlier for like really meaty discussion just because sure. of what this was but no i think it it set the stage for a lot of fun going forward so with that i'll say Thank you for hanging in with us here, but tune in next month for They Won't Believe Me. And I'm Matt in Buffalo. And I'm Matt in Arizona. Until then, that's a wrap.